Welcome to the Leeds Business Insights Podcast, featuring expert analysis to help you stand out from the herd. My name is Amanda Kramer. We are thrilled to be discussing lessons learned from the intersection of academic and real-world entrepreneurship with Jeff York, Research Director of Leeds Deming Center for Entrepreneurship and Professor of Entrepreneurship, and Brad Werner, Deming's Teaching Director as well as entrepreneur, angel investor, and experienced CEO who has led a number of early growth ventures through initial risk stages. Thanks, Amanda. Great to be here, Amanda. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. Well, let's start with your partnership. How did you two meet? Uh, was I in one of your companies at some point? No, so, so you know what? You know, the first time that we actually met Jeff, and I don't know if you remember yeah. this, is when I moved to Colorado, I reached out to the Deming Center to say, hey, I'd like to help in some way. And I think we had a breakfast, actually. I don't even know if you remember this. Yeah. So that was the start of our long friendship, Amanda. And we've actually connected pretty well ever since. It's been yeah, six years. Um, and you know, tell me if I get this right, Brad. I, I don't remember. I think like you wrote to the lead school and just were like, hey, I've moved to the area. I'm interested in helping out. And the thing about Brad was I was like, wow, when we just met and had breakfast, I just was amazed by all the different experiences he had had and the different kinds of companies he'd been involved in. You know, we're really fortunate here in Boulder that people that can basically live wherever they want because they've been successful as entrepreneurs choose to come here a lot of the time now. If you told me 10 years ago that I would be in the classroom, I would have bet everything that I have that that's not the case. And the first class that I was given, which was pretty much two weeks after I met you, Jeff, they put me in the law school and I think it was total plausible deniability. If this guy totally screws up, we have no idea who he is. <laughs> and but slowly they moved me closer to Leeds and now I actually have an office there. So this intersection of academia and real world experience is pretty cool. That sounds great. You know, Jeff and Brad, we want to hear lessons learned from you. I've got three topics. I'm going to throw them out there. Let's go through them one by one. We want to hear what you have to share about that. And the first topic is going to be a customer's first mentality when developing a business. What do you have to share with us on this? Sure. I would say that, and I'm just addressing my fellow entrepreneurs out there, people look at customers as a source of revenue, you want to actually be a consultant to your customers and help them with their problems. So customer first means you have the old school way of doing things is design something that provides benefits. The agile way that I think Jeff and I talk about would be talk to your customers, find out what their pain points are and design to solve those pain points. And I think that that truthfully is... <laughs> It seems really simple, right? It takes me 30 seconds to articulate this, but most people don't do that. And when, especially when you talk about creatives in the engineering world and those types of people, they'll stay in their garage for three years, come out, they think that they've invented the new Velcro and nothing happens. Jeff, you see that all the time, right? You see that with your students. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we do a class called Do Venture Launch, uh, where we bring together science students Oftentimes, people with PhDs that have invented a product, patent pending, scalable, all the things we look for. And then we uh, put them together with business students. And it's really interesting to see how these people who are just, I mean, flat out way smarter than me and than most people in the world, but it's just such an often occurrence that they assume because they've built this thing, people will buy it. And it's just like the kiss of death for entrepreneurs. There's all these biases that have been shown in psychology and, and in entrepreneurship research time and time again. 
the problem is that you have thought about this product for years. You've dedicated so much time and energy to it. You understand all its benefits intricately. Everything about it is abundantly clear to you. And then you run headlong into a wall of people who do not care about you at all, care much more deeply about their own problems, are absolutely adverse to changing their behavior in any way, shape, or form, are suspicious of new products. I mean, this is just a very well-known phenomenon that we see all happen all the time. Right. And the smarter the entrepreneur, the deeper the hole they can dig, which is really crazy. But So think about it this way, Amanda. If you were to develop a business and you said, hey, I need a million dollars of investment money, and somebody gives you a million dollars or a group of people gives you a million dollars. And then you go to talk to customers and you find out they don't want it. You're out that million dollars now. Whereas if you say, Hey, you know what? Let me talk to some customers first, design for them and say, Oh my God, you have customers telling you, if you build this, we want this tomorrow. Now, now the, the investment money actually really does something and it's meaningful when there's a return and it helps you and you know you don't spend years of your life going through this vicious circle of chasing money and chasing customers at the same time. Yeah, we've actually done studies showing that that leads to a death spiral. People do that all the time. They work really hard on predicting things without actually getting it in front of customers. And the more time you spend on that, the less likely you are to actually ever get to being a company. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm very interested in how passion might play a part in this, because let's say you're an aspiring entrepreneur and you figure out that the product that customers want is not something you're actually that interested in. Have you seen this? Do you have advice? What are your thoughts on that aspect? Well, that's a real tough call, truthfully. So passion is important, right? If you don't believe it and you're not willing to work 90 hours a week on it, it's not going to happen. I've actually done a study sort of related to this, this, uh, Co-author of mine in England, uh, Isabel O'Neill, really interesting woman. She's actually a social entrepreneur herself. She's a professor at University of Nottingham. She followed all these people that were doing these social enterprise, for-profit ventures in natural foods in the UK. For, she followed them for five years. She's still following today. It's amazing her commitment to this. It's over a dozen people. And it was this fascinating thing where they all started with this very strong environmental passion. And in fact, when she tried to refer to them as entrepreneurs, the majority of them refused that title. Like they didn't want to be entrepreneurs. They're like, don't call me an entrepreneur. Smart I'm not trying people. to exploit people. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, exactly. They, they're still married too. Uh, no, and so, uh, but what happened is over time, many of them, she only found this out by following them over the years. Many of them became more comfortable with that role and became more successful in launching their businesses but they were incredibly unhappy. And, you know, she didn't see that with people who just kind of stuck with the identity they started out with, which is really fascinating because like we have this ideation. We were talking to Bob Eberhardt, one of our guests from Stanford about this. He's now at UCLA. UCLA. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about this ideology of entrepreneurship, this idea that we create this ideology that entrepreneurs are the ultimate force for good in society. And we, when we hire someone to perform a service for us, in the gig economy, and we don't offer them any benefits, no pay insurance, no union, no assurance of employment, nothing to support them if they have a failure. We're not, you know, exploiting them. We're making them entrepreneurs and, <laughs> and calling them Uber drivers. And look, now you're an independent entrepreneur. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really harmful. And one thing I love about lead school is, you know, we at the Demix are are huge proponents for entrepreneurship, but we're not trying to deify entrepreneurs as some like amazing other species that we should all aspire to be. 
It's not for everybody. And it shouldn't be for everybody. No. And it's society, wait, society has really put uh, some of these folks on a pedestal. And, and if you talk to someone that's been successful and has had the fortunate path of being a successful entrepreneur, first of all, I guarantee you there's many failures in their life. Number two, it's a really hard road. It's a really hard road to go. And people see maybe this financial gain or recognition at the end of the road, but have no idea the difficulty of the path that it takes to get there and the risks that they've taken. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And this conversation that we're having lends really well into the next topic, which is pivots to business models. What have you learned in this space? Actually, it's interesting. This this concept of the pivot comes primarily from sort of the lean startup methodology. And it's something we've actually known about for decades, but it's just recently become like kind of a cool term. And a friend of ours, Matthew Grimes at the Cambridge University Judge School of Business has written a great paper about this. And it's almost an essential part of the process. It is like so incredibly rare that someone comes up with like an idea and it's a great idea and they're able to gather the resources they need to do it and convince enough people and they find customers. It all goes just in this lovely straight line to a market. I don't think I've ever actually heard of it happening, like even read about it happening, much less seen it. And we see it in the classroom every single semester. There's a team of students. They have an idea they're passionate about. They're convinced it's a great idea. I tell them it's a terrible idea. I bring Brad over and tells them it's a terrible idea. All their customers tell them it's a terrible idea. Every guest tells them it's a terrible idea. And there's a lot of reasons it could be a terrible idea. Yeah, there's dozens of reasons. They don't want to believe it. Don't want to believe it. My class and Brad's classes, they're competitive. Like they are performing against the other teams. Invariably, these teams do poorly in that, which is reflected in their grade and in the feedback they receive. And I've seen this half a dozen times. The last two weeks of the class, they change what they're doing just completely and do something they actually know something about and can execute on. And like they win our last challenge presentations. The just judges are like, this is great. You guys actually are executing on this. It's wonderful. So I think it's like, it's become like this catchphrase, like, oh, sometimes you have to pivot. I think it's actually, we should be teaching that it's not just like something to do when you run into a roadblock. It's like where you're actually going to end up. It's going to happen. I have two points there. Number one, the difference between what we teach and regular education is I found, and this is a very general statement, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, that students, by the time we get them, have learned how to read something, regurgitate it for a test, and move on. And we teach them how to think. And it's really hard for them. And it's really hard when you give them honest feedback, because there are many times that this is the first time these folks have had honest feedback. And that's the hard part of going through our program. In the middle, they're ready to kill you. At the end, they want to hug you and they say thank you. <laughs> and the other thing is, and I've never talked about this on the podcast, but I'm a co-founder of a company called Azumo. And last year, Crane Chicago Business wrote an article about our company and it said, the title of the article is Pivot Until You Get It Right. And it was actually eight years of pivoting. So if you're interested in what I've done, folks, check out oh. Pivot Until You Get It Right, Crane Chicago Business, because we actually live... I live what I teach. I mean, we really, really do it. And I think that that title, Jeff, I think you'd love it. That's cool. But the other thing is, though, we don't put our hand on the scale early because the point is, is you need to teach people to understand they've run into this brick wall. You need them to go through the process. Right. They have to reach that failure to know yeah. that, oh my God, 
wait a second, and it doesn't mean the end of the world. We just have to think of something else. Values-based decision-making. Tell us more. Personally, I, I believe, and this is my personal belief, and I don't know if it's backed up by data. Jeff, you can follow up on that one. I believe that the values instilled within a company are one of the most critical elements to building a business. I think it's critical in connecting with your employees. I think it's critical with connecting with your customers. I think it brings it for a better life for the entrepreneur. So for me, values pretty much lead just about everything else, or at least or need to be aligned with everything I'm doing. And I will tell you truthfully, there was part of my career when it was all about money. It was just about, hey, how do I make more money and how do I do this? When I have kind of evolved into values, I would say number one, ethics, number two, values, then you're on your way. And the Deming Center was working with Charter Communications yesterday. We were talking about corporate values in a very large company. And I would say that, that this works for entrepreneurs, it works for large companies. Values-based for me is the entire ballgame, right? It's not a work-life balance. It's just life. How do you want your life to be? Yeah, it's interesting. This is a tougher area for research because it's so hard to separate, not to get too technical, the aspirational self from the true self. Like there's these social norms, what I believe other people think I should believe, therefore I will say. And there's a real trap whenever you try to get into that with people in the research. Now that said, there's actually some really cool, a really cool evolving research stream on entrepreneurial identity and how the different kinds of identities we, and roles we play in society influence the types of opportunities we see and the types of things we pursue successfully. And there's definitely growing evidence that individuals who can hold multiple identities as being important as an entrepreneur. What does matter is when people can align their business with an identity they hold as being critically important as well as their identity as a smart business person. So for example, when someone is taking an active role in addressing environmental problems through say volunteer work, just doing trail cleanup work, there's a big difference between that and being someone who like recycles when they see the opportunity to. The other one, you're like actually trying to do something. And when that person also is exposed to business training or has significant business experience, they tend to create really different kinds of opportunities and pursue different things. And I think this is just a fascinating thing because here at the lead school, you know, we do attract so many students who care about, I mean, I'm not saying other schools don't, it's just in the culture here, who care about solving environmental and social problems through business Whereas business is the means to the end, not the end in and of itself. So I think that's a really hopeful, powerful, and inspirational role we can play as entrepreneurship teachers. And the research is just now starting to show some of these things. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. And I actually, just as, a, as an entrepreneur, I believe that entrepreneurs can change the future, knowingly change the future. We have the power to solve many of these social issues and environmental issues. And I think that that is awesome. Yeah. Well, in ways that people don't think about too, right? Correct. In my opinion, an often very overlooked approach, as much aggrandizement as we do for our social entrepreneurship, trying to get someone to actually explain what that is. <laughs> I'm not really sure people know uh, a lot of the time. And Jeff, when you say in ways that we might not think yeah. about, do you have a couple of examples you could share sure. to bring that to life for our listeners? I try not to talk about my own research on our podcast, but what the heck, I'll talk about it here because it. it's a chance. So, um, Actually, the most recent paper we have, uh, I've published, is with 
Michael Conger is at University of Miami, Ohio. Uh, Sid Vadul is at Technology University of Munich. And then uh, Elizabeth Embry, who's a current doctoral student. So both Michael and Sid were doctoral students here at Leeds as well. So it's a real uh, CU family affair, sort of generations of scholars working together, which in and of itself is neat. But what we show is that we look at the green building industry. So people doing environmentally responsible construction. And we look at these companies that are founded in that sector to try to figure out what are some of the factors that will lead to their survival? And is it any different than any other entrepreneur? So is someone working in green building different than someone that's like creating an app to help you like more conveniently hang your code up when you go to nightclubs? I'm just thinking of the most silly, but yet probably out there thing. Just something that doesn't have environmental or societal broader implications. And what we found out was that, yeah, all the same factors apply. But what's interesting is these companies don't actually do better in like environmentally conscious regions, places where people care more about the environment and think that business is like bad, right? They actually do way better in places where people care about the environment, but they also care about economic prosperity and growth. And you might not be surprised to learn those places are generally <laughs> college towns, places like the upper Pacific Northwest or around Seattle. Ithaca, New York was another one. They're places where people are supportive of business and growth. They just also care about environmental problems as well. Entrepreneurs get the support from both sides of the argument. And they diffuse this whole awful situation we find us in in the United States and globally where people think of as a trade-off between solving climate change and the economy. And there's no trade-off because there won't be an economy if we don't solve climate change. It won't matter. And just as if we were to solve climate change by somehow depriving everyone through force of having a decent life, well, is that a world we want to live in either? So I think entrepreneurship is a methodology for getting around this. It kind of gets short shrift a lot of times and can really uh, diffuse political dialogue that, that frankly goes nowhere. Totally agree. If you can show that there's opportunity in doing good, people will do good. Yes. And in other studies we show, it's the intersection of policy, of corporate action, of NGOs and social movements and entrepreneurs working together and aligning against these things that actually make progress. But that's not always obvious to us in the dialogue we think about. So- Every episode, we have an LB idea or a key takeaway. And the key takeaway here is threefold. As you're starting your business, number one, lead with your customer, figuring out who they are and verifying your product or offering with them, and perhaps even co-creating it with them. Number two, realize that you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to change what you've landed on multiple times. It will be crucial for your business's success. And number three, lead with your values and what you care about in order to ensure that you have a successful idea and business. I couldn't have said it better myself. Starting a business is a real lift. You end up dedicating your life to it. And so you better be willing to dedicate your life to something that you care about. Well, Jeff and Brad, thank you both so much for joining today. It has been wonderful learning from you. Thank you. It's been uh, great talking to you, Amanda. We've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, come check out our podcast where we talk more about beer and whiskey. <laughs> as well as entrepreneurship. <laughs> it's actually Brad and I having this kind of a conversation over beers and talking about like the difference between his experiences and what the research was. I think 
we do need to, in an applied field, in a business school, step back every once in a while and say, okay, yes, I'm teaching them about the things I'm researching, hopefully in the classroom, but how would I actually translate this and, and make it useful? We're going to have topics on things like the effect of legacy and university admissions and how that applies to entrepreneurship. And we've got some great breweries and distilleries lined up. You can catch Creative Distillation on the CU Leeds website. Thank you again for listening to Leeds Business Insights. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Leeds Business Insights wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about our podcast series at leeds.ly slash LBI podcast. We'll see you next time.